The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Bina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where every single week we work our fingers to the bone to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. So it's the last Wednesday of the month, and as always, that is question and answer week, but this is a little bit of an unusual one, because I am, as you listen to this, on my way to Grand Rapids, Michigan, for their big annual conference, um, which is apparently taking place in 12 inches of snow, which I'm very much looking forward to driving through. So we put out the call to Real Life Real Estate listeners a couple of days ago that any questions you all wanted to send in needed to come in via email, and I've collected those up, and those are going to be the ones that I am answering today. It's not going to be a usual live Q&A show. It's going to be all pre-recorded, but we've got some great questions here, a wide, wide range of things. So just settle back and listen up. All right. Our first question, it's come from Chuck in Raleigh, North Carolina. And because they are both insurance related questions and insurance is not exactly my uh, forte, I just, you know, let other people write the policies. Um, I have called in some expert help. That is T.J. Morris, who is the vice president of business development for National Real Estate Insurance Group, who agreed to jump on with literally like five minutes notice to answer these questions. So uh, very much appreciate your help today, T.J., um, not a, not a problem. I'm happy to be here. These are these are probably probably questions I should be able to answer, but no no way am I going on the air and like doing the best I can with these. Okay, so Chuck has two questions regarding property insurance. The first one is, what is the difference between actual cash value and replacement costs, and when would you use one versus the other? Okay, so this is it's a good question, and it's it's a question that's really not everybody grasped and and the reason i say that is is that uh most people in the insurance world where they're you know when they're gathering insurance for their investment properties they just want to be covered regardless well replacement costs in actual cash value are really the same thing until you have a loss okay so at a point of a loss if you have the replacement cost coverage or actual cash value your product or your your house, your kitchen, or whatever, you know, if it was a partial loss, say it was a kitchen fire, um, in, in that loss is going to be, or those items are going to be depreciated on, on their age, right? So a roof is depreciates a lot faster than the rest of the house. If a 
um, if they come out as a settlement at the time of a loss, the, the inspector comes out and they say you you had a loss, here's the depreciated value. They're going to take that off of the settlement amount minus your deductible and pay you that amount. With replacement cost, you're able to accrue that depreciation amount back after you make the um, kitchen, or in this example, whole again. So really, actual cash value and replacement costs are the same thing until you have a loss. Now, that being said, if you insure at actual cash value, you're going to save quite a bit of money on the insurance side of that. So if it's a, if it's a house that um, you're, you're wanting to, you know, not necessarily the best shape, not the, so the best neighborhood, you're able to uh, save some money on that loss um, or save some money on the insurance in, in on that property. Well, if you have um, – the reason – well, I tell my investors to do is if you'd have a total loss, would you rebuild? Mm. And, and, and the question is, it's a good one because a lot of these investors buy these houses for pennies on the dollar, and there's no sense in them insuring for $120, $150 a square foot if they're not going to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. And that may be the replacement cost value for that location. To where if they can share it for actual cash value, they're, if they have a total loss, they're made whole again, and they get their funds back. They, they clean up the land, they sell the land, and they move on to the next investment. Actual cash value might be the way to go. Yes, here in flyover country, sure. there's lots of houses that you could not rebuild them for what they're worth. Like like you could only Correct. sell it for 85000 but it would cost 170000 if you if it burned down and you had to rebuild it. So with with yeah. with actual cash value, if I have a fire that destroys my roof or a storm that pulls off the roof, or the, we're talking about the roof here, and mm-hmm. the roof is halfway through its lifespan, what I'm going to be paid for by the insurance company is half of the roof because it's halfway depreciated. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, correct. There's going to be a percentage that depreciates. Roof roof depreciates a lot faster in most insurance companies. Anything over 15 years old will be held at actual cash value regardless. Mm. But yes, it is It is going to be um, the re- depreciated amount off of the roof um, for how the age. But if I'm paying for, re- if I'm paying for replacement cost insurance, I'm going to get a new roof. It's just that the replacement cost insurance is going to cost me more every month leading up to that point. Correct. Okay. Correct. Got it. So, so here's one that like I didn't even understand the question. <laughs> okay, this this one's even, <laughs> this one's also from Chuck. He says, "What is insurance to value, and why is it bad for investors?" Okay, so insurance to value is is really I'm going to um, I'm going to insure this property. To, for the the $180 a square foot that it would be valued at. In other words, I have a property I purchased that's 50 years old, and I'm and I paid $100,000 for it. Well, I'm going to insure this to $100,000, right? The two value. And w- with that being said, though, is is the the house is already 50 years old. The depreciated value is already there. So insuring it that high, mm-hmm. whenever you not necessarily need to insure um, a property for that amount. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, you, you need to look for in the area what the actual value is around the area, and maybe we can save a lot of money insuring that property for $70 a square foot and still warrant the replacement cost, but you're insuring it for a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it, it's the same thing with a lot of people on the, on the, um, when they're doing builder's risk policies, they insure for their actual value of the house 
well, or what they would sell it for. Well, with an inv- in a replacement cost or a builder's risk policy, um, it is going to be to where you're held to your invested capital. Mm. So how much do you have into it? Um, and so that's a big uh, misunderstanding with the insurance world, too. So if you have a builder's risk policy, you only need to insure it to, for what you have into the property. <sighs> Purchase price plus the inv- uh, expected renovation costs. So do is, is insurance made... Uh, complicated and confusing on purpose do you guys do this yeah. on purpose <laughs> yes, or yes. is it just yes, the nature yeah, we want to make sure everybody everybody is confused as much as possible um and and that way you guys don't file any claims yes exactly <laughs> exactly uh so yeah. so yeah another uh another lesson here about always having service providers that actually understand investing um we t- t- talk about that all the time here on real life real estate, you know, people call and they've got a question that their accountant who knows nothing about real estate told them something incorrect or their, you know, their attorney doesn't understand how to draft a land contract. Insurance is the same. You, you really have to have a company that uh, or, or an agent that understands what it is you're doing as an investor as opposed to what you would do as a homeowner. Otherwise, you might end up uh getting a policy you don't really want or need and that you're paying too much for. Yeah, yeah, and, and to add to that, don't don't give, uh, you know, work with somebody that understands because don't give any insurance company the opportunity to die a claim because they, they will, um, if, if anything is, is not listed or, or done correctly. Appreciate your coming on today, TJ. Um, yes, no, happy to be here. No way was I going to be able to answer those questions. Uh, that was TJ Miller. <laughs> not a problem. That's TJ from uh, National Real Estate Insurance Group. Appreciate him. Uh, Literally, I texted him on the way over here and said, can you jump on the radio for a couple of minutes and answer some questions I can't answer? So that was really good of him. Uh, You're listening to Q&A Day. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got all sorts of questions about everything from IRS liens to wholesaling. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it is question and answer day here on Real Life Real Estate. But uh, you're not going to hear me give out the phone numbers or the email address today because it's a pre-recorded Q&A show. We asked for questions uh, over the last couple of days on Facebook and to the Real Life Real Estate email list. Um Anytime you do have a question, you can send it to askvina at gmail.com, and we will sort of store it up for later answering uh, on the last Wednesday of the next month that comes up. But uh, today, just sit back and listen. Uh, have a question here from Annie in, I'm going to say, North Carolina. Uh, how do I find out if there are IRS or state tax liens on a property in North Carolina, those liens are filed under criminal law, and it takes special software that lawyers and title companies have that's very expensive. Okay, so I think you answered your own question there, Annie. Um, the way you're going to find out whether there's IRS or state liens on the property is get a title search, and I would say the same thing to you if you were in Ohio, because it is... Um, it is they're they are filed at the courthouse here and you could go look them up but it would be an incredible waste of your time to 
do that. There's no not really a place you can go online and find them. So it just is part of a normal title search. And the only reason you would be looking for an IRS or state tax lien on a property that you did not already have under contract and therefore would naturally be doing a title search is if you were going to be doing something like bidding at an, a foreclosure auction where you don't know if you're going to get it or not, but you kind of want to know if you do get it, whether the title's clear because you don't get to give it back if it's not. Uh, in those cases, generally when the bank files the foreclosure, they notify everybody who's got a potential interest in the property along with the filing. So you'll see that it's, you know, Citibank doing the foreclosure, but also they're notifying um, Discover Card, Joe Blow, the state of Ohio, and and anything on that list is something they turned up in their title search as they were doing the foreclosure on the property. So uh, not that you maybe shouldn't still get a title search if you are going to seriously bid on a public auction type property. I'm, I'm talking about sheriff sales here. Generally, if you're bidding on an auction that's just an auction, there's a you know, guarantee of clear title, but not any sheriff sale or tax sale. Uh, you, you might want to spring forward like a, like a preliminary title peak to find out those things. Uh, but then, of course, you know, you'll go to the auction bid and you won't get it. So you will have spent potentially some money that you didn't need to spend. Uh, second question, also from Annie, how do you negotiate a settlement with the IRS? I have a feeling there's an IRS issue here with, I think she's maybe found a property with an IRS lien. Uh, typical reduction of the lien, time to get a decision. Is there a written process? Uh, it, I have never found it to be that formal. Um there's there's two things that would happen if you were going to buy a house with an IRS lien, right? One is you're paying enough that the seller can just pay off his lien, which is the ideal situation. But of course, that never actually happens. What you're, what you're offering is always less than the total of the first mortgage and the IRS lien. So the other situation is you're buying a house for 200000 There's a $170,000 mortgage and a half million dollar IRS lien. Like it is way, way short of being able to pay off that IRS lien. Uh, what I have found is uh, if you call the local IRS office, find out who negotiates liens. Uh, you tell them what is available to pay it because what, what they do not want, what the IRS does not want is they don't want your seller. So we said 170 is the mortgage, 500 is the IRS lien. They don't want your seller to walk out of that closing with 20 of that $30,000. They want to walk out with all of it. They want to they want to have all of whatever money is available. So they typically want to see like an offer and a closing statement and things like that to know that they're getting the money. There is a little piece of paper that you fill out, but we've always gotten a decision within a week or less. And the decision is is almost always we will take any and all money over whatever the liens ahead of us are and we will accept that and we will not understand we will not release the the uh taxpayer like like he still owes $470,000 when this is over what they will do is they will release the lien from the property and typically they will do that because you know if the property is only 
going to sell for $200,000. Why, why tie that up? Because they're not going to foreclose. So thank you very much for your question, Annie. It is Real Life Real Estate. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And the questions all came in uh, via email at askvina at gmail.com. A question from Derek here in Cincinnati. I have a house under contract to be sold, but I bought it under a lease with option to buy. I know when it comes to closing, we were we are doing a double closing, and I understand the theory, but I'll be honest, the actual fact of how this happens confuses me somewhat. What are the actual steps, and how do I make sure the title company my buyer selected understands what's happening and does not mess it up? So, um, yeah, those, those situations are uh, something that's always going to happen to you when you are controlling a property via a lease option. It's not much talked about how that closing is actually going to happen. Because when you think about it, you you don't own the property. You just, you have an option to buy it. The buyer on the back end has, I don't know if they've lease optioned it from you or if this is just a, you know, I put it up on the market and it sold kind of situation, but they know you. They don't know the actual owner of the property. They signed some kind of contract, either a lease option or a purchase contract with you. They did not sign it with the actual owner of the property. The simplest and easiest way to close these deals, especially when your end buyer, so the third person in this line, uh, is getting bank financing, is to sign the contract directly between the buyer and the actual owner of the property. And I say this because when the buyer's bank does the title search and finds out that Derek, who signed the per- the sale agreement, doesn't in fact own the house, they get all confused and discombobulated. And they say, we can't do this. So when the seller is cooperative, the the contract should be between your buyer and your seller and the way that you are going to get paid is you're going to when the when the uh title searcher does their title work they're going to find that you have an option to buy the house and you will be paid on a line on page two to buy out your option basically so let's put some numbers this it always helps me to have numbers. Let's say that you have optioned the property, ignore the fact of the lease, that you have optioned the property for 200 and you're selling it for 250. 200 of that belongs to the seller because that's what you agreed to pay. The other 50 belongs to you. So the way the title company will work it out is that the sale price will be 250. The sale agreement will be between the actual owner and the buyer and the $50,000 difference the 200 of it will go to the seller and the $50,000 difference will show as being paid to you to buy out your option to buy or to have you release your option to buy now the other way to do it is a double closing as you suggest but that means that you actually have to buy the property at the first closing and then sell it at the second closing and that could create a number of problems number one if you don't have the money to buy it that could be a problem Uh, And number two, now you've created a situation where if there is any restriction on the borrower in terms of them being able to borrow money on 
a property that has only been owned for an hour, you got an issue, right? Because the title search happens, it says the owners own the property for 10 years, and then at the actual closing, a different owner is selling the property, and that owner has owned it for an hour. So yeah, there are some, there are some complications here that I don't hear talked about a lot. I hear that, oh, you should always lease option properties. That's the best way to control them. But I don't hear this part about what happens at the end talked about a lot. But um, if you have a cooperative seller, you should just be able to sell it straight from the seller to the buyer. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Bina Jones-Cox. It's Q&A day, and we've been taking in questions uh, for a couple of days now in preparation for this pre-recorded show. Um, if you have a question, you can send it to askvina at gmail.com, but you won't hear the answer this afternoon. Uh, this question is from Roman in Cleveland, Ohio. He says... I find owners of multifamily properties, including apartment buildings, all the time who are interested in selling but have little to no documentation along the lines of rent rolls, receipts, profit and loss statements. Also, they don't want the property shown because it's going to upset the tenants. It doesn't matter if it's on or off market, it seems. Have you or anyone else ever figured out a way to successfully prepare the seller and the property to encourage an offer? Have you ever sold a property to a buyer or their property manager that didn't see it or did a walkthrough on their own, even if you provided a video? Um, yeah, so that is very common, what you're describing, Roman, amongst, especially in smallish multifamilies. If you're talking about anything below about, I don't know, a 10 or 15 unit, it's probably more common than not that the seller does not have detailed uh, income expenses, bills, um, you know, uh, rent rolls, as you said, uh, they might have a list of who their tenants are and how much they're supposed to be paying and whether they paid this month, but they don't have what you really want to see, which is like two to four years worth of rent rolls. Cause when the tenant moves out of apartment four, they take out their spreadsheet and they remove the tenant in apartment four and put a new one in with a new rent. And they just, they don't really have records. They also can't reconstruct them. As, as much as you would like that to happen, uh, they're not going to be able to do that. So when evaluating a property like that, all you can do is the best you can. Um, really, when I'm looking at a property like that, I look at whatever they've been able to give me. I call to get the in, the income and expense information that I can from the service providers. So for instance, I can call the water department and say, what has the even billing been for the last 24 months? I can call the gas and electric company and ask the same questions. Uh, it's rare that those folks have a lot of service providers along the lines of like landscapers because they do a lot of that work themselves, which leaves another gap in the expenses because you have to assume that a potential buyer is going to have it done. So I gather up what information I can, but then I mostly kind of do a pro forma to say, all right, he hasn't got any information about any apartment turnovers and what they cost because he bought 500 gallons of paint eight years ago at the end of the year because he wanted to 
push the expense into that year. And he's been using it ever since. And he and his wife paint the place themselves. There is no expense except that for me, there will be an expense because I ain't going to do that. So, you know, I I do just pro formas and say, all right, there's 10 units. uh, Roughly each one's going to go vacant every year. That's going to require a turnover. They are three-room apartments. Therefore, it's going to cost about this. So, uh, unfortunately, that is the way it kind of is with that sort of unit. Now, on this issue of don't, they don't want to show the units. I mean, come on. I, I can understand saying, I will show you a video and I will show you our vacancy and I will show you the uh, common areas, but you won't see the units until I have accepted an offer. I, I can see that. But if somebody told me, yeah, I want you to buy this place sight unseen and I've I've made videos my offer would go down 40% because I would assume that the reason that they didn't want me to see the inside was there was stuff that wasn't on the video that they didn't want me to see. No intelligent buyer is going to buy without them or some representative that they trust seeing the insides of the units, right? So I think it would be fair to a to a seller to say, show me what's vacant, show me the the you know if you've got a property manager show me their unit show me the common areas and the way I will write the contract is I will pay this much money contingent upon actually investigating the rest of the units because how long are they going to be able to hide from the tenants that they're selling the building the tenants going to know after the building sold right and and also you know you're allowed to sell your real estate even when there's tenants in it so uh yeah that that last thing I, I i i i understand the argument that the tenants are going to get upset and i understand not wanting to drag a zillion buyers through the property but i don't think that that's reasonable to say i want you i want you to buy this um and pay me full price without seeing the insides of the units so uh, thank you for your question. Uh, we have a question here from Freddie, who does not say where he is from. Uh, he says, I am wholesaling a property with an out-of-state seller, and this will be a mail-away closing. Seller is paying code violations out of proceeds, which is about the same amount as the wholesale fee. Would you recommend doing a double close to present to prevent the seller from seeing the wholesale fee? Um no, Freddie, I would not. I would recommend that you assign your contract and get paid at the time of the assignment, which would be a significant distance before the closing, um, just because that's how I recommend that you do things, because what you're selling is a contract. You're not selling a house, so why are you getting paid at the closing? Uh, if you're afraid the seller is going to get upset by seeing your wholesale fee, I would say that um, he's going to know, if you do a double closing, he's going to know what it is, right? All he's got to do is wait a week and look in the public records and he knows how much you bought it for and he will see how much you've sold it for. Uh, I think you might 
you might be overthinking whether or not he's going to get upset, but also I would strongly recommend that you consider, um, you know, getting paid for your assignment fee up front instead of on the closing statement, which is when I think you're doing it. Okay, question from Michael, who also does not say where he is from. How can I avoid taxes on option fees collected? <laughs> well, Michael, you can't avoid taxes on any income that you receive. You can evade taxes on income that you receive, but you know what happens to people who do that, right? They they go to jail. Um, there is a, a theory floating around that, and this is, I've got, like I've heard this from CPAs, that because option fees are sort of a an uncategorizable income until something happens, that they can be the tax they can be claimed on the taxes in the year in which the option is either exercised or abandoned. Because if the if the option is exercised and the option fee comes off of the sale price and would be a capital gain, right? But if the option is abandoned, if the if the person leaves the property and does not buy the pro- buy the property, it would be treated more like rent. And because you don't know which one it is going to be until maybe a year or two or possibly more up the road, uh, that you can claim it a year or two or possibly further up the road. Now, I would definitely talk to my own CPA about this before I before I tried saying, well, yeah, I collected $10,000 and I'm not going to tell the IRS I have it for a few years. Uh, definitely, I would get that. I would get that information. I would get that advice from your CPA, and uh, see what he has to say about it. Because the IRS is an organization you do not want to cross. And again, you are not going to avoid the taxes. It, the question is, at what point do you have to pay them? You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Question and Answer Week. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week. Man, got questions from all sorts of different angles here today, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you, listeners, for coming forward with those. Um, Question from Frank in Cincinnati. He says, we just finished our second flip about two months ago, and it's been for sale since then. There have been very few showings rave reviews from anyone who walked through it the comments stated that they didn't like the proximity to a nearby highway which it backs up to this seems to be the only thing no one says it's priced too high we have lowered the price twice from 473.9 to 450 we're bleeding money since the house was purchased with a hard money loan at 15 percent uh, we're newbies at flipping, not but not at doing the work. So the work is really great looking, if I do say so myself. What advice would you give to have it sold quickly um, or any good connections? We thought about converting it into a residential adult living facility, but that would need a refire to take on an equity partner to pull that off. Um, okay, so Frank, you say 
that no one says that the property is priced too high, but everybody likes the property, but everybody doesn't like the fact that it's near a highway and I assume therefore loud and or um, not a pretty view out the back window or the side window. And, you know, agents always say it's about location, location, and location, but really it's about price, price, and price. The way you overcome the fact that you bought a property next to a highway, which, by the way, Robin Thompson would have told you not to do in the first place, uh, is you lower the price to the point where a buyer goes, I really, really, really want to live in this beautiful house in this amazing area, and at this price, I'm willing to live next to the highway. My guess is you can't lower the price that low. My guess is you've already you've already dropped the price by almost $25,000, plus you've got all the work into it, and you have, uh, as you say, been bleeding money. My guess is that you don't have the ability to lower it by another few hundred thousand dollars to... <laughs> I'm exaggerating, tens of thousands of dollars to get down to the point where a home buyer in that area will will say the price is worth the noise or the view or whatever. Uh, so what do you do in that case? Well, uh, the idea of turning it into a residential adult living facility, it sounds exciting, assuming you know how to run a residential adult living facility. And assuming that the you're not going to have the same problem filling it up. Now, my guess would be that that particular use of the property would not be greatly disturbed by the fact that the property was next to a highway. I mean, I'm assuming you can't wander onto the highway. I'm assuming there's a, a wall or barrier of some sort between you and the highway. But you you can't you're not going to be able to rescue this by jumping into something that you can't effectively do. RALs require inspections and licensing, and as you say, uh, in order to hold on to it, you can't hold on to it at fifteen percent. You're going to have to refinance the property, and uh, it would be very helpful in a refinance to already have some sort of income history. So. You have kind of a rock and a hard place here. You might end up uh, in the refinance since it's been vacant this whole time, ending up having to put another down payment down. In other words, you bought it for whatever. I'm going to say 350. It's now worth whatever 400, 450, and uh, you've got no income history on it, and you're asking for a refi. It's possible they're going to make you put 20% down, even though I'm guessing you already put down down payment money and have some of your own cash sunk into it. So it is a tough situation. And the the options on a house that expensive in Cincinnati, Ohio, are fairly limited. Uh, you're not going to make a bunch of money renting it, even if you do refi it, because the rents versus the payments are just not going to be in line. Um, if you can lower the price to the point where somebody takes it anyway, uh, I would I would be inclined myself to even pay to do that if I had to and just call it a lesson learned. Uh, if you want to look into RALs, there's a show back in the archives on reallife, realestate.com uh, by Jean Guarino, 
who talks about those some. Um, but again, I think you could be digging yourself in even deeper if you get into a strategy that you completely do not understand. So um, sorry this happened to you. You got it out of the way, though. Every investor has a story about the property that they lost a bunch of money on. And hopefully this will be your last one. Okay, question from Michael. Um, how risky is it for a licensed or unlicensed person to offer verbally or in writing a finder's fee for someone to refer a buyer or a seller? In my desire to avoid the Florida Real Estate Commission, aha, he's from Florida, and jail time, how risky is it for a licensed or unlicensed person to offer a finder's fee? What is the worst punishment ever heard of anyone receiving for this infraction? And what is the best legal or almost legal workaround? Interesting. Uh, so, Michael, it is illegal in every state that I'm aware of for a person who does not have a real estate license to receive money for what you're calling a finder's fee. The theory being you have to have a real estate license in order to make any money whatsoever from somebody else buying somebody else's property. The finder's fee thing is, I mean, to me, that's like taking it to a real extreme because I, I assume what you're, what you would like to offer people is, hey, if you, if you see a vacant, ugly house and you give me the address and then I track down the owner, I negotiate it, I buy it, I can give you 500 bucks. And it doesn't, that doesn't seem like that, that person receiving that $500 doesn't seem like something that requires the level of education or signing on to ethics agreements or whatever that it takes to get a real estate license. You see what I'm saying? Like the reason realtors take all those classes and have to take continuing education and have to take a test and so on is because they are being fiduciaries for other people. They are standing in the place of a buyer or a seller. They are often handling money. Uh, they're definitely handling like the most expensive transaction that that person's likely to do in their lives. And what this guy did was he wrote down an address it doesn't seem like that should fall into the same category as someone who went and represented their friend in a real estate transaction without a real estate license, right? However, uh, the divisions of real estate do enforce that when they find out about it. So the, the person who really is supposed to be in trouble there is the person who received the fee, but often they do also go after the person who offered the fee because usually the person who offers the fee does it more openly. I've seen it on business cards. I've seen it in Facebook posts. Um, I actually know of a case in Florida specifically where someone was carrying around cards that said, you know, $500 finder's fee for deals we close or something like that. And they got uh, caught I guess would be the correct word by the or reported to or something the real estate commission and they were fined like $10,000. Now, I will say that that is the worst punishment I've heard of anyone receiving for that infraction. I don't believe that even in Florida there is jail time for someone paying or offering to pay a finder's fee on a piece of 
property. I think it's just, you know, it's they can fine you. When they take your real estate license away, if you have a real estate license, uh, they can send you a cease and desist order and, and make you sign a consent decree that says you'll never do it again. But I, it, it doesn't rise to the level of filling up the prisons with people who pay or receive finder's fees. Um, the best legal or almost legal workaround, there's there's not a workaround. I mean, it, it's it's the law. Does it still go on all the time that somebody says, hey, I appreciate you sending me that, that list of addresses of vacant, ugly properties, and I closed one, and I want to send you and your wife on a cruise, which was is still a finder's fee, by the way. I'm not saying that that, like... That's like a workaround because that's still a finder's fee. But what I'm saying is it it does happen pretty consistently. I think that's partly because people don't understand that it's not legal. Uh, But there are no circumstances in which you can pay somebody without a real estate license any money for finding you a, a property, even though all they really did was find you an address. So... Uh, sorry, Michael. Sorry to tell you that, but that's kind of the way it is. Um, we got a question here from, let's see. Oh, there's no name. Oh, yes, there is. It's up at the top. Richard. Richard from I don't know where. Wow, we're, I'm, getting, I'm getting lots of questions from people about um, stuff that is done but is not, strictly speaking, legal. Uh, question one, what are the best places to put bandit signs with minimum to no risk? Border zones, war zones, bread and butter areas, etc. Will you explain? Oh, he's from Dayton. Richard's from Dayton. Okay. So uh, bandit signs are illegal everywhere. If what you're talking about is hanging them in on telephone poles and putting them on you know, in public right-of-ways and things like that. There's not a place in the world that doesn't have ordinances that says that say that you cannot put those signs out in places where you don't own the place, right? So um, typically, unless you live in a homeowners association or someplace like that that has its own rules, you could put those signs in your own yard, in the yards of your rental properties, uh, things like that, buildings you owned, right? You could do that. But uh, there is always a risk anytime you put up a bandit sign that you're going to get a call from code enforcement or whoever is out there finding people for this and they're going to want to fine you for your bandit sign. Question number two is what are websites I can use to find different kinds of areas within my local market? So identifying border zones, identifying bread and butter neighborhoods, etc. Um, well, so uscensus.gov does not have categories called border zone, move up area, luxury area. But what they do have is something called wealth codes that go from one to 10 with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest. And you can find out by census tract what the wealth codes of particular neighborhoods are the easiest place to find out where border zones are is do this google opportunity zones google opportunity zones which is a you know we've got a show about that in the archives in real life real estate as well uh it is areas where you can get gigantic tax breaks for buying and redeveloping properties 
And those opportunity zones are pretty much 100% across the across the board border zones. So that's where I'm sending everybody to the opportunity zone maps because boy, that'll tell you exactly where your border zones are. So thank you for your question, Richard. And thanks to everybody else who has asked questions on Q&A day today. Uh, You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.